Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I'd like to read beginning in verse 19, and we'll read a few verses, then I'll skip over to another part of the passage. But let's begin in verse 19. Now, this is the testimony of John when the priest sent when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then... Look over in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The evangelist John introduces John the Baptist, not the same John, of course, but uh, John uh, the writer introduces him In verse 19, uh, this is the testimony of John when he was asked. He's encountered by this group of priests and Levites. They were sent by the Sanhedrin to inquire of his identity, this eccentric preacher out in the wilderness, attracting so much attention. Uh, So many were flocking to him to be baptized by him. They want to know, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And to all of these answers, all of these questions, he answered emphatically, No, I am not the Christ. Who are you then? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. You see, John the Baptist was sent to be the forerunner of the Messiah. It was prophesied concerning him hundreds of years before in the book of Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And what a faithful member, John, uh, what a faithful messenger John was. He didn't try to draw attention to himself. In fact, he was always pointing away from himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He had been telling others about him in verse 30. He says, this is, of, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And we know uh, the order of the conception and the birth. John the Baptist was before Jesus. But he didn't mean in this temporal life, but he meant before I existed, he existed. John tells us at the beginning in chapter, in verse 1, that in the beginning, that is in the beginning of all things, he, with the Word, was with God. And the Word was God. And so he's been telling others 
about this Christ. And so he sees Jesus coming to him and he exclaims, Behold! Uh, behold, here he is. He's been telling him about this one who's coming. Uh, he existed before me. He's so much greater than me. And now he says, Here he is. Uh, the anticipation had been growing. The excitement was building. And now he's come. He's arrived on the scene. This is Jesus' introduction into his earthly ministry, his public ministry. Behold, John says. That's a word of attention. Look at this. It's a word of excitement. It's like a finger pointing towards something, calling everyone's attention to look at what I'm seeing. And he says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a very peculiar designation for such a one as this. Uh, it, it may sound strange to our ears. Not really. We've been hearing it for uh, so many years and in our own Christian life. We we read of this all the time. The Lamb of God is it, spoken of in the book of Revelation at least 28 times as the Lamb of God. But there are many other designations of Christ in Scripture which may appear to be more beautiful, more suitable even, more glorious, more fitting. There's the title, the, the Lion of the Tribe of Judah, the Bright in the Morning Star, the Son of Righteousness, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They seem a bit more appropriate. I understand that Teddy Roosevelt wanted to change the national emblem from an eagle to a grizzly bear because he thought that's more appropriate. We're not like some eagle that flies around, soars around. We're a bear. That seems more appropriate. Well, this title seems a bit small for such a great one, doesn't it? But John, when he sees him coming, twice calls him the Lamb of God. It's a peculiar title. But it's a perfectly familiar title and motif that runs throughout the pages of Scripture from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. The lamb was not only a well-known and widely used farm animal in biblical lands, but it occupied an intricate and vital part of the worship of Yahweh. As early as Genesis chapter 4, we find Abel bringing the firstlings of his flock as a sacrificial offering to the Lord, to which God said that his sacrifice was better than that of his brother Cain. This was only the beginning, though, of what would become the offering of thousands upon thousands of sacrificial lambs. These lambs slain as a sacrifice, though, were all but types and shadows of the good thing to come. They were all, like John the Baptist, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God. And Jesus is called in Scripture the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And as I read in Revelation chapter 5, uh, we see the Lamb sitting upon the throne, even pick, trying to 
picture that in your mind, it just doesn't sound quite appropriate. A lamb sitting on the throne. But we read, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessings. And so this is the title as he introduces the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, there are several thoughts suggested to us in this title, the Lamb of God. Well, primarily and preeminently in Scripture, it has to do with being a sacrifice for sin. When John cries out, Behold the Lamb of God, every Israelite was reminded of all of these sacrificial lambs that they had been so accustomed to since they were born. Every year they celebrated the Day of Atonement with the offering up of the Paschal Lamb. The Paschal Lamb on the night uh, when Israel went up out of Egypt was slain. And each Hebrew smeared the lentil and the side post of the door with blood. And the sight of that blood sufficed for the deliverance of that particular family according to the word of Jehovah. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so it became a command of God to sacrifice this lamb yearly. There was also the daily offerings and the morning and evening sacrifices, lambs slain continually. The Bible makes it very clear, though, that these lambs that were slain throughout the history of Israel could never, ever take away sin. Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it's not even possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. But what they did do, they engraved upon the minds of the people the idea of an atonement for sin. That sin could be atoned for by the sacrifice of another. And so these lambs that were slain pointed to that one who would provide the atonement for sin. But secondly, however, these there were other animals that were used for sacrifices, and yet Christ is never called the goat or any other or the bull, uh, but he's called the lamb. This particular name was given to him because it is the most adapted to reflect the glorious attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. Being a lamb reflects his innocence and his righteousness. The lambs that were to be offered in the sacrifices of Israel had this unaltering, unbending qualification. They must be perfect. Without spot, without blemish, without defect whatsoever. First Peter 1.19 says that we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 22, it speaks of the Lord Jesus who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. He is the sinless Lamb of God. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Which made Him the perfect sacrifice for sin. It also reflects the Lord Jesus' patience under suffering. In Isaiah chapter 53, that great passage that 
points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says He was oppressed and He was afflicted and yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. What a picture of Christ. A lamb being brought to the slaughter. Not kicking and wailing, but following, usually the goat, following Him in to be slaughtered. First Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, When He, the Lord Jesus, was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously. So, this Lamb reflects our Lord's patience under suffering. It also reflects His meekness. His gentleness. One thing we speak of as a lamb is being gentle. Gentle as a lamb. Mary had a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. That's the picture of this gentleness. The Lord Jesus Christ was the gentle Savior. Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, He offers this invitation. Come unto Me, all you are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am what? I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, speaks of that meekness and the gentleness of Christ. That gentleness reflects his approachability. In the book of Revelation, Christ is exalted on the throne, and yet he's still called the Lamb upon the throne. This glorious Lord in heaven, the glorified Christ, is still called the Lamb upon the throne. But it also, this designation points to the fact that He is the God-provided sacrifice. He's God's Lamb. God provided a sacrifice for Himself. Just like when Abraham went to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice under the direction of God. He was to offer him and and plunge that sacrificial knife into his own son. The last moment, the angel of the Lord stopped him and said, God knows that you will obey Him. But God has provided for Himself a sacrifice. And there caught in a thicket by its horns was the ram. God provided the sacrifice then, but God provides the sacrifice now. He is the one who ordained Him as the Lamb. He's the God-ordained, God-given, God-accepted sacrifice for sin. But John not only calls Him by this designation, he specifies the very work that Christ has come to do. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Charles Spurgeon said, this is heaven to a soul whose sins are dragging it down to hell. Sin can be forgiven. For Jesus is the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. What a sight is this to see. Those who can never be sore, those eyes can never be sore again that have once seen sin put away by Jesus. Here He is. Look upon Him. He is the Lamb who takes away 
the sin of the world. Now, let's break that down just for a bit. It says he takes away sin. Now, John uses the word sin in the singular, which indicates that he's not speaking of one particular sin, but of all sin, of all kinds. All kinds of sins, sins of the past, sins of the present, sins of the future. And we know there are different kinds and types and degrees of sin. But he takes away all sin. No sin. You, you think, well, my sin? But you don't know my sins. My sins are too great. Or, or my sins are too many. No, he takes away sin. He takes it away. And that's the second point. He takes away sin, but he takes takes away the sin. It takes away. It's the word expiate. Now, there's some differences. It should be expiation or propitiation, but it's really both. Here I believe John is alluding to the type of Christ that's found in the Old Testament scapegoat. You remember the scapegoat when the priest would would lay his hands on the goat and was confessing the sins of the people in, in, in a sense, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to that goat. And then it would drive the goat out into the wilderness away from the camp of Israel. And that's what Jesus does. He takes it away. The Bible says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed your transgressions from us. He casts it into the depths of the sea. He hides it behind His back. He takes away the sin of the world. But not only does He take away the sin, He takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial lambs were offered up on behalf of the sins of the people of Israel. But the Lord Jesus, when He gave Himself up to be a sacrifice, He did not die for the Jews only, but for the Gentiles as well. I don't believe this is in any way teaching a universal atonement that He actually paid the price for every single person's sin. But it does say He died for all kinds of sinners. There's no group of sinners that is excluded from His sacrifice. Not only for the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. His blood atoned for every race. And so He's able to save all who come to God through Him. Arthur Pink said in Genesis 4, sacrifices offered for the individual, Abel. In Exodus 12, the sacrifice avails for the whole household. In Leviticus 16, on the annual day of atonement, the sacrifice was efficacious for the entire nation. But here in John 1.29, it's behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Gentiles are embraced as well as Jews. The very thing we've seen in the book of Acts the glorious truth, the mystery, Paul calls it, that was hidden in times past, has now been revealed that Jesus has died for Gentiles as well as the Jews. But then He takes away the sin of the world by taking that sin upon Himself. Quoting again from Isaiah chapter 53. We read there, all we like sheep, in verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, which I believe is a, a, a marvelous description of sin. 
It captures the essence of sin. We've turned away from God, from His commandments, from His direction, and we've gone our own way. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. God had laid out His way very carefully and had told them and warned them, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of this one tree you may not eat. And they decided not to go God's way. Instead, they went their own way, which really, in essence, was Satan's way. When we go our own way, we're following Satan. Satan wants us to go another way. He doesn't want us following God. He wants us to go our own way, which is his way. But then it goes on to say, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Spousers are divided here as well with this word. Should it be translated, bear our sins or take them away? And I believe it was both. Take them away. He took away our sin because he bore the iniquity of us all. First Peter 2.24 says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. So he took away our sins by taking them upon himself. Said this morning how God laid upon him the Savior, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Took our sins and laid them on Christ. Someone has described it as like he took our filthy coat of sin and he put it on and he wore it as if it were his own. It wasn't his own, but he wore it as if it were. And then he takes his perfect robe of righteousness and he puts it upon us and we put it on and we, or he puts it upon us and we wear it as if it were our own. Of course, we know it's not our own. Paul said, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God. Through faith. We may not fully be able to appreciate the offense this designation might have brought to many of the Jews. The Lamb of God. Well, they were looking for the Messiah, all right, but they were looking for the Messiah King, this great conqueror who would come and deliver them from the hand of their enemies. That's what they were expecting. They would have been more receptive to hear John exclaim, Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. But instead, he says, the Lamb of God. But to others, no greater title could be given. Certainly none more suitable to their needs. Yes, we need a king to deliver us, and he's that as well. But we need a Savior, a Lamb, who will take away our sins. John's been out in the wilderness preaching a message of repentance. Repentance supposes or presupposes the presence of sin. He says, repent. You have to, well, what do I repent of? Your sin. It presupposes that you have sin. In Mark 1.5, it says, and all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him, went out to John, and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. You see, the moralists, looks at the Bible and reads the New Testament and they see Jesus as a great example 
And certainly He is. And we know that. We're even told to follow His example. But the sinner looks to Him and rejoices in Him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what should be our response to this Lamb? Our response should be to follow the direction of John. What does he say to do? He says, behold, look, look to this one. We must look to him. He said, how can I look to him? I wasn't there. I can't see him with my eyes. Well, that's not what we're to do. We can't see him with our eyes, but we're to look to him with the eyes of faith. You've probably heard the testimony of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, how being a young man or young boy was going out. It was a very snowy night and he he saw a church and saw some lights on, saw there was a service going on. And so he went in and the regular preacher wasn't there. In fact, he said he wasn't a very educated man at all. But he began to listen to this preacher. The regular preacher wasn't there. He was snowed out or something. wasn't able to make it. So just one of the men in the church started preaching. And here's what he said. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. And the text was, look unto me and be saved. Look unto me and be saved. Now looking, he said, don't take a great deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just a look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needeth be worth, need not be a worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said, in broad Essex, many of you are looking to yourselves. But ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by. Jesus said, look unto Me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto Me. Isn't that amazing? What a beautiful picture of faith. What does faith do? Faith looks. (laughs) Faith looks. There are other expressions that uh, explain faith to us in a similar way. We're, we're to rest in Him. What kind of working work is resting? <laughs> it's not working. It's trusting. It's resting in Him. Come unto Me. It's just coming to Jesus. Not walking an aisle, but coming to Jesus. How do I come to Jesus? You bow your head and you pray and you call upon Him. You come to Him in prayer. We must learn to look away from ourselves. As that old preacher said, you won't find anything there. You won't find comfort and help there. No hope there. We must look to Him as our only hope. As our only hope in life and in death. Looking to Him as the only one who can take away sin. A lot of people think, well, I'll take it away by just trying to live a better life. Well, you ought to try to live a better life. But that's not going to save you. Trying to live a better life, you're just going to dig your hole a little bit deeper. You need to come to Christ. Look to Him. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh is born can make my spirit whole. 
Not what I feel or do, do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. You see, only He can bear it. And He bore our sins on the cross. Behold the Lamb of God. The writer goes on to say, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this way to sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. We need to look to Him as the Lamb of God slain for our sins. John Flavel, one of the Puritans, said, May your beholding Him lift up your hearts as if they were sinking with a sense of sin. If the blood of the Lamb can take away the sin of the world, it can take away your sin. Though there be a world of sin in you, it can take it away. You see, your iniquities have been laid upon Christ. If you're trusting in Him, your sins have been laid upon Him. And if your sins have been laid upon Him, they'll never be laid upon you. He's borne them. He's carried them away. The Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We need to look to Him and we need to let that looking to Him increase your hatred of sin and your determination to fight against it. Don't ever let it make you think, well, you can sin all the more because He's the Lamb of God who takes it away. I keep giving Him more and He keeps taking it away. No, we need to turn away from the sin. It ought to make you hate your sin. When you look at the price He paid for your sin, it ought to make you see how sinful sin really is. That Him, you who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here at the cross may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. If you want to know how awful sin is, look to the cross. Look to your Savior dying there. Look what it cost the Son of God that you might be forgiven. We think forgiving is easy. Forgiveness is divine, we say. It's what God does. No, it's what God can't do unless Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's how He forgives sins. Matthew Henry said, Let us hold fast which the Lamb of God came to take. Let us not hold fast what the Lamb of God came to take away. How can we hold on to our sin when we see what it cost our Savior? Here we see the awful price of sin. Peter said, we're not saved by silver and gold or precious things, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot or blemish. This is the atonement. Our Savior was the Lamb slain. What is the atonement? Where does that come in with your thinking? What kind of role does it play? Look at the great love with which He loved us. The love of God the Father. He spared not His own Son, but He delivered Him up for us all. It shows us the love of the Son of God who laid down His life for us. May His love constrain us all the more day by day. 
the love of Christ constraining us, may we love Him because He first loved us. Not only first loved us, but He expressed that love in the greatest possible ways. He gave Himself up for us. Behold the Lamb of God. What a title. What a Savior. What a hope. Take that away and we have no hope. If all He said, here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we might run and hide. But the Lamb of God makes us accepted in the Beloved. Do you know anything of this? Have you looked to Him? Have you looked to Christ? I didn't say you go clean up your life first. No, we come to Him just as we are without one plea. But that His blood was shed for thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Come to Him now if you haven't already. We're coming to the table. Coming to the table can't save you. But what the table points to can save you. It points us to the Lamb of God. The cup represents the blood of Christ. That sounds like a gory meal. Oh, it's a glory meal. It's a glory meal because Jesus Christ purchased our salvation with His own blood. And it points us to Him so that we might be saved through Him. Would you pray with me?